Oh, thank goodness. The longest two minutes of our life. But praise God for these guys willing to come up and be fools for Christ for a couple of minutes. Now, uh, a quick word to those of you who are maybe visiting Hope for the first time. Uh, I can guarantee if you come back next weekend, we will not do anything as horrible as that. But I can also guarantee if you come back on a regular basis, you will see something horrible like that. I don't know, three or four or five times a year. And here's why. Turn to the person next to you and say, hallelujah. hallelujah. But, but say it like you really mean it. Hallelujah. Yeah. So hallelujah, hallelujah is the Hebrew phrase for praise the Lord. And the root word inside the song halal, uh, inside this phrase, halal means to boast, to rave, to shine. And then let's read this last line together. To be clamorously foolish. And so that was our attempt, and I think quite successful, at being clamorously foolish as a way of praising the Lord. Hallelujah. The song that you heard in the background is by the uh, great artist Fatboy Slim, and uh, the song's called Praise You. It was actually part of an album that was nominated for a Grammy in the late 90s, which tells you something about how awesome 90s music uh, was. And the line they kept repeating was, I've got to praise you like I should. I've got to praise you like I should. And that's what we want to talk about today. What does it look like for us to become people who praise the Lord, people who hallelujah the way God calls us to praise the Lord. And to help us with this, we're going to be taking a look at the life of King David. We've been doing this uh, all through the month of June, this message series looking at this book and life lessons from King David. The first lesson we learned was about how God looks not so much on outward appearance, but God pays attention to the condition of our hearts, what's going on on the inside. Last week, Pastor Mike reminded us of the power of God to help us face the giants in our life. Today, the lesson that we're going to be learning from King David has everything to do with how do we have a heart of worship? What does David have to teach us about worship? And, and at this particular point in the story, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is now the king. He had been anointed a long time ago, but now he's finally been crowned the king. He's trying to establish Jerusalem as the capital city of his kingdom, and they finally wiped out the Philistines. They have a lot to be thankful for. They want to praise God for the good things God is doing in David's life and for the entire nation. They're ready to hallelujah. They're ready to praise the Lord. And part of that celebration includes getting the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, and bringing it to Jerusalem. Now, we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about the Ark of the Covenant in church, and so I went back and I was reading through some of the passages where this Ark shows up. It, it starts in the book of Exodus. Moses is leading the people of Israel to the Promised Land, and they stop at Mount Sinai along the way, and God gives Moses all the commands, the Ten Commandments, yes, but also a whole lot of commands or instructions primarily around worship. What, how does God want the people of Israel to worship? And part of the instructions were to build this portable tabernacle, this church that they could move from place to place as they were on the journey. Kind of like the way we had a uh, mobile church when we worshiped in a, a middle school for about eight years as a congregation, setting up and tearing down, and that's what the people of Israel had to do as well. And one of the things that went into the tabernacle, a part of the worship, was this ark. And there were instructions that God gave, here's how big it needs to be, here's the shape, here's how you decorate it, and that, that sort of thing. Also, what goes inside the ark. So the stone tablets where God wrote the Ten Commandments and gave them to Moses, those are inside the Ark of the Covenant. 
a jar of manna. Manna was the bread from heaven that God uh, sent to feed the people of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness. And then lastly, Aaron's staff. And so Aaron is Moses' brother. He becomes the first priest of the people of Israel. And priests were very important in terms of what worship looks like for the people of Israel. So Aaron's staff represents the priesthood. The instructions included put rings on the side of the ark so that you can make poles and put the poles through the rings. And then the priests would carry the ark. Kind of as the people moved at the front of the procession would be the ark. When they actually make their way into the promised land, they cross the Jordan River and it's the priests carrying the ark who go first. The ark is this powerful symbol, a powerful representation of God's presence with God's people. God's presence with God's people. Uh, David has the idea of building a temple to the God of Israel. His son Solomon actually completes the temple. They put the ark in the temple, and do you remember where it goes? It's in a place called the Holy of Holies. Behind this huge uh, curtain, this veil, was the Holy of Holies. Nobody went near the Holy of Holies except for uh, the high priest. And only like once a year would they go back behind that curtain to where the Holy of Holies, uh, where the ark was in the Holy of Holies. The, the idea was you don't touch the ark, it's too holy, you don't look inside the ark, if you do, bad things might happen to you, just ask Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? <laughs> and so uh, one of the main characters in the early part of the book of Samuel is the ark. 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, and 6, uh, the Philistines and the Israelites are in a battle, and the Philistines win the battle, and they capture the ark, and they take it to their capital city, and they put the ark of the Lord inside this temple to their god, the god Dagon. Remember, all of the countries, all of the regions around Israel, everybody had their own god, and, and part of what military conquests were about is whose god is the best god, who's strong is the most, whose god is the strongest god. And so the Philistines capture the ark, and they put it in uh, Dagon's temple. They go to bed that night. When they wake up the next morning, something interesting has happened. Let's read this together. 1 Samuel 5, verse 2. Read it out loud with me. Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. And because we're not part of this culture, there's a part of the power of this story, a big part of the humor of this story that we miss out on. You know, when you read through the Bible, sometimes the biblical writers will use the word worship. In the Old Testament, more often than not, they don't use the word worship, but they describe what worship looks like. In particular, they describe what people are doing with their bodies when they worship. They're lifting their hands, they're clapping, they're shouting, they're bowing their heads, they're lying prostrate as a way of worshiping the Lord. Worship in the Old Testament for the people of Israel, God's people, worship was a full-bodied experience. And a big part of worship included, do you have the right kind of posture as you are worshiping God? And so what we have here is a verse about worship. Dagon, the false god of the Philistines, is in the posture of worship, worshiping the true God of the Israelites. How embarrassing for the Philistines. They hate this. They wake up. They get their statue back the way it's supposed to be. It takes them all day. They go to bed that night, wake up the next morning. Same thing has happened. And so in their embarrassment, they're like, we got to get the ark out of here. So they build a cart. They put the ark on a cart. They harness a couple of cows to that cart, and they send it off hoping it'll leave their country, go back to Israel. And that's what happens. And for about 20 years, the ark is just in this place called Kiriath-Jerim, about 12 miles west of Jerusalem. 
And that's where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David's the king. He's establishing Jerusalem as his capital city. They've wiped out the Philistines, and he's, he's ready to hallelujah. He's ready to praise the Lord. He's ready to have this celebratory, worship-filled party. Here's what happens in verse 5. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. As you look at that verse... What picture kind of pops into your head? What is it? A whole bunch of people celebrating. I don't know if you notice if you read through this, the word celebrate shows up all over the place. A lot of singing, a lot of instruments. How loud might it have been? What are the people doing when you look at a celebration like this? Do you know what we call our worship services here at Hope? Celebration services. So what I want you to do is just think for a second Where are the places in your life that you find yourself celebrating? Not here, not when you come for worship at a celebration service to the Lord, but in other places, weddings, graduations, I don't know where it might be, uh, uh, ball games when you win a championship or a game. What are the kinds of celebrating that you do? And what do you look like? What does it sound like? What is your body doing? I've been at a lot of wedding receptions with you. I know. I've got a picture in my mind of how you celebrate. You know what it does not look like? How you worship. <laughs> right? Our, our celebration outside of this place is very different than our celebration inside of this place. Why is that? All kinds of reasons. Let's dig into it a little bit. Uh, in March, I got to go to the Holy Land and it's the first time I'd ever been to the Holy Land. Sometimes people will ask me about my trip, like, what were, what were the places? Was it Bethlehem? Was it Nazareth? Was it Jerusalem? Where was the place you just really was like, this is cool, this is where God is? And part of what's interesting to me is, is often it was at a place that was not necessarily connected to any particular Bible story. Um, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, mark your calendar on uh, August 18th. It's a Sunday a couple of months from now. After the 11 o'clock service, we'll have a potluck, and we'll just show some pictures, and and, uh, the people who were there with me will talk about our experience. I'm super jealous. Eli, uh, our discipleship minister, he's going to the Holy Land in about eight months in February, taking, I think, about 30 people. If you're interested in that sort of a trip, Eli, I'm sure, would love to talk with you about that. But one of the highlights for me was the day we spent around the Sea of Galilee, and we saw the place where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we saw the home of uh, Mary Magdalene and excavation work that's going on in the village of Migdala, Mary Magdalene. Uh, we went to Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters of his ministry on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's also where Simon Peter's home was, and there was a, uh, a synagogue we got to go through where they're pretty sure Jesus would have preached from that synagogue. Just cool stuff. Took a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. And then at the end of the day, something kind of surprising happened. We got in jeeps and we rode across this real lush, uh, fertile agricultural valley in northern Israel and the sun was setting and it was just beautiful and we ended up in this place, felt like it was kind of in the middle of nowhere, but there were people there to greet us and they were ready to uh, have us join them for this celebration and and, and a party, just kind of a, a typical sort of Middle Eastern celebration. 
So the first thing they did was they taught us a traditional Hebrew dance. And we danced, we learned it really quickly, and we danced this dance. Then they moved us inside of a, a kind of a shelter house, this open-air shelter house, and they had stations set up. They divided us into three groups, and each group was responsible for preparing a different part of the meal we were going to eat that night. So there's fresh fruits and vegetables. There was a group of people putting kebabs together that we, we grilled. There was a group of people putting... Uh, desserts together, pastries that we baked and we got to eat. It was just a fantastic meal. And at the end of it, we had more celebrating. A couple local musicians were there. They taught us to sing uh, some Hebrew songs and to dance to some more Hebrew songs. And they gave us drums to play. And we tried to be as celebratory as possible. I'll give you, uh, it, it was just joy-filled, exuberant kind of celebrating. Here's just a short video to give you a little glimpse of what that's like. We cut it off there so as to not embarrass some of the other members of the group, but the idea is we actually do know how to be clamorously foolish. And, and when you go to a different cultural context, I go on mission trips to Central America or to Africa, or you end up at a place like this in the Holy Land, it just kind of flows out of you, this worshipful, joyful, exuberant, full-body kind of celebration. And far too often, that's not a part of our worship here. Why is that? Why is it that we think, and, and maybe even a more accurate way to say, why is it that we know when we come into a worship center we're supposed to be quiet, and we're not supposed to laugh, and you're not supposed to have fun. You're supposed to be still and make sure nobody sees you. Where's that come from? A couple ideas that I have on this. Uh, when I was 18, I graduated from high school, and I ended up spending the summer before college touring with a Christian music group. We went all over the United States, and we did a concert pretty much every night in a different church in a different town. You would have to set up everything and then tear it down and load it into a bus and move on to the next spot. Uh, at the end of every concert, we were highly evangelistic, and so we wanted to tell people about Jesus. And at the end of the concert, uh, we would share the gospel, and if anybody wanted to talk to us about Jesus and uh, for us to try to answer questions or, or pray for them, we would do that. And so before the concert, we tried to get ourselves ready for that. We would take an hour, and this was a group of about 30 young people. The youngest people on our tour were 16 years old. The oldest were 26. So we were really young, really clueless, had no idea what we were doing. But we would take an hour because we knew we needed God to help us with this, to pray, to read scripture, to sing some songs. And one of the songs that we sang together before the concert was this upbeat song. I don't even remember how it goes, but I remember there were movements to it. And we would all be standing up, and there was this thing where you would start just kind of winding your arm. And I don't remember exactly why, because I can't remember the lyrics. But I got really good at that wind-up thing. I got so good that people kind of looked to me to lead everyone, and how do you do this wind-up thing? Well, about a month into it, one of the more mature members of the group, she was 24, and she actually was mature because she had gone through some hardship. She was a widow already at 24 years old. And she sat me down one day, and she said, you know, Scott... It seems to me when you're doing that wind-up thing, it seems to me like that's more, it's like a show that you're trying to get people to watch you, and it's not really about worshiping God. And I didn't particularly like hearing that from her, but I also knew she was right. Of course, that's, I wanted people to watch me. I wanted to entertain. 
and she was giving this good, gentle reminder, that's not what worship is about. Worship's not making a show. Worship is about connecting with God and pointing your heart, your mind, your thoughts to God. And so I think one of the reasons we're pretty calm in worship is we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. I mean, I can't tell you how many guys I called to say, hey, would you be willing to dance with me? And most of them said, I don't want to draw attention to myself. Sky, you know, we, we just kind of understand this. Now, here's one thing I find interesting, though. A lot of people who would never want to draw attention to themselves in a worship service, when they're outside of here, like their whole life is focused on drawing attention to themselves. I mean, it's how you, you know, how to win friends and influence people. Draw some attention to yourself. That's how you grow a business or, you know, whatever. It's how social media works. It's what social media is for. For me to post things, here's an interesting article that I read and look how it talks about grace and look how it talks about love. And I post it so that people underneath it will say, oh, when I read that, I think of you. And it's really a way about, you know, getting people to pay attention to me. Paul says, our whole life is worship. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. Not just when you gather together with the community on the weekends, but everywhere you go, throughout your life, you're to have a posture of worship. It's about not pointing people, drawing attention to yourself, but pointing people to God, getting people's attention to turn to God. So just a gentle reminder, not just on uh, here at worship, but wherever you are, how are you living your life? What is your posture? Is it about you or is it about somehow pointing people to God? And again, I, there's a line there that, yes, we, we want to not cross, but that does not mean we can't move, we can't clap, we can't raise our hands. When you go to places in the world where full-body worship still happens, you know who draws attention to themselves? The people who stand there like this. And I understand there's all kinds of... like Some of us, clearly, we can't clap and sing at the same time, so I'm not <laughs> going to participate, right? But what does it look like for you to engage in worship? without crossing that line into making it about you. Second uh, reason why I think, and most of us don't know, so we're just like, I'm not going to do anything. The second thing is this Bible story, I think is maybe one of the reasons why we worship the way we worship. David wants to have this joyful, exuberant celebration of God's, look at all the good things that are happening in David's life and in this nation that he is leading. Let's praise God. Let's hallelujah for all these good things. But look what happens next, verse 6. When they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. In my Bible, there's an asterisk at the end of it, and it says in the Masoretic text or the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest text that we have, uh, what it actually says in Hebrew is, God killed Uzzah because he was too irreverent. He was too irreverent. He reached out and he touched the ark, and everybody knows you're not supposed to touch the ark. You're supposed to just carry the poles. Bad things happen if you touch it. I don't know about you, I don't like this verse. I, it confuses me. I don't understand God's point here. Uh, God seems mean and unloving. And it makes me a little angry, if I'm going to be honest. If it makes you a little bit angry, you're not the only one. Here's how David responds. Next verse, verse 8. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. 
Think about it. He's trying to praise the Lord. He's trying to get the whole country to praise the Lord, to recognize, we understand the good things that are happening in our life, Lord, are because of you. And then something not so good happens. And all of a sudden the celebration stops because nothing kills a party like the wrath of God. You're like the only um, service that got that. It's supposed to be a little fun. <laughs> they must have been tired. Uh, David's wanting to celebrate the goodness of God, and now something happens, and he wonders, is God actually good? Is God on my side? And the worship ceases, but it's, it's not just that David is angry. If we look at the next verse, verse 9, I think this tells us why worship is the way it is in many of our churches. David was now afraid of the Lord. David's now afraid of the Lord. Why do we know we don't have fun when we come to church? Why do we know you don't smile, you don't laugh at church? Because if you cross that line into irreverence, God's going to kill you. And we, we may not actually believe God will kill us, but maybe our parents will be mad at us if we're being too loud or whatever. Or maybe our Sunday school teacher, right? Maybe God will be displeased, angry, you know. Instead of giving us good things, God's going to bring about bad in our lives. We, we don't worship joyfully and exuberantly because we're too scared of God. There was a study the Pew Research Center did a year ago. They looked at worship in America. Part of what they discovered, four out of five Americans, 80% of Americans believe in God. At the same time, uh, the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, which I just think is a fascinating thing, let's scientifically study religion, um, they published an article that said about 17% of Americans show up for worship on any given weekend. 80% of Americans believe in God, 17% of Americans worship weekly. A way to summarize that would be most Americans believe in God, they just don't actually worship God. And isn't that where David finds himself? in 2 Samuel 6. I was trying to worship the Lord for his goodness. Now, my buddy Uzzah has been killed and it kind of has an impact on my heart for worship. Uh, who David believes God is, who, who David thinks God is, is a direct correlation between that and his heart for worship. There was a movie that came out a couple of years ago. Denzel Washington directed it. It's called Fences, and it's based on a, an award-winning play. Denzel also played the main character, a husband and father named Troy Maxson. He's in his 50s. He's living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in America in the 1960s. He's a garbage collector. He has a son who's really good at sports, particularly football, so good that recruiters are trying to contact Corey, Troy's son, to get him to go and visit their school and potentially play football at their college. And Troy doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Refuses to let the recruiters come uh, for a visit. You forget about sports, forget about football, uh, study hard, graduate, and then get a job. That's the future for you. And the way his dad is acting raises some questions uh, for Corey, the son. Take a look. How come you ain't never like me? Come here, boy, when I talk to you. What law is there say I got to like you? None. All right, then. Don't you eat every day? Yes, sir. You eat every day. Yes, sir. Got a roof over your head. Yes, sir. Got clothes on your back. Yes, sir. Why you think that is? Because of you. Because you like me? like you. 
I go out of here every morning. I bust my butt putting up with them crackers every day because I like you. You're about the biggest fool I ever saw. It's my job. It's my responsibility. A man is supposed to take care of his family. You live in my house, fill your belly with my food, put your behind on my bed because you're my son. Because I like you, because it's my duty to take care of you. I owe a responsibility to you. Now, let's get this straight right here now before I go along any further. I ain't got to like you. Mr. Rand don't give me my money. Come pay day because he like me. He give it to me because he owe me. Now, I don't give you everything I got to give you. I give you your life. Now, don't you go through life worrying about whether somebody like you or not. You best be making sure they're doing right by you. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. So here's a son who is convinced his father doesn't like him. And it makes him a little angry and it makes him a little afraid. And David's in the same place. A little angry at God, a little afraid of God. What about you? Like when you think of who God is, what, what kind of God, what kind of picture, what kind of a person pops into your mind? Maybe you're a little angry at God. Maybe something happened recently that wasn't good, doesn't seem fair. Blame God for that. Mad at God about that. Maybe it's more fear that, you know, your understanding of who God is, God's ready to pounce anytime you make a mistake, anytime you reveal some kind of flaw in your character. And so you believe in God, you believe God exists, but your heart for worship is really just not there. Why would I want to worship a God who doesn't like me? Maybe it's passages like this where God seems randomly violent or maybe even disturbing. What if there are better places for us to go in Scripture to get our picture, our understanding of who God is? What if one of the reasons Jesus came was to help clear up some misconceptions that religious people might have about who God is? Jesus does his public ministry for three years. He's hanging out with his 12 disciples. And at the end of those three years, he says to his disciples, the time's coming for me to return to my father. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Doubting Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? And if you're going to the Father, show us the Father. We want to know what the Father is like. Let's read together how Jesus responds. It's John 14, 9 on the screen. Read it out loud with me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Say that one more time. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, it's the power of God's presence with God's people contains the commandments and the priesthood and manna, the bread from heaven. Who is Jesus? The fulfillment of the law, the commandments. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. He's the bread that came down from heaven to give us life. Everything that the uh, ark represents in the Old Testament is embodied in Jesus. Jesus is God's presence with God's people. And in the Old Testament, when it comes to the ark, it's like, let's keep our distance from the ark because we don't want bad things to happen. But when you look at Jesus and what he is doing all throughout his ministry, it's come closer, come closer, come closer. Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. Come closer so that close enough that you can be touched by Jesus, receive a healing embrace from Jesus. In his ministry, as Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, part of what Jesus is doing is trying to help us believe our Heavenly Father is a good, good Father, even when he teaches the people to pray. Uh, Luke chapter 17 is Luke's account of Jesus teaching his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. Here's 
why we pray. Here's how we pray. And just as importantly, here is who we are praying to. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not, Jesus says. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's Father's Day weekend. I don't know what your relationship with your dad is like, your earthly father. Some of you maybe have great relationships with that. When, when Jesus says, no, fathers aren't going to give a snake to a kid who asks for a fish, you're like, yeah, my dad would never do that. But some of you may be like, no, I'm not sure about my dad. <laughs> if I ask for a good gift, my dad just has proven over and over and over, he'll give me a bad gift. So whether you have a good dad or a not-so-good earthly father, part of what Jesus is saying here, your heavenly father is better. Your heavenly father is better. Your heavenly father wants to give you a good gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now here's part of what's interesting. Who does Jesus believe God to be? Well, when Jesus is 12 years old, his parents lose him for three days. When they finally find him, he's in the temple and he says, why wasn't this the first place you looked for me? Why, why would you think I'd be somewhere other than in my father's house doing my father's business? In his ministry, when the religious leaders would question him, why are you doing those things? Why are you saying those things? Jesus' primary response is, I only do what I see my father in heaven doing. I only say what I hear my father in heaven saying. Throughout his ministry, Jesus seems to be trying to communicate the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And, and the Son is trying to help convince, help communicate to the world around Him that you can take delight in, you can love, you can trust your Heavenly Father the way Jesus does. If you read a portion of Scripture that's confusing to you, that makes you wonder, is this really who God is? Maybe dig into it, absolutely, sure. But go back to the Gospels and look at Jesus and try to remember who does Jesus believe God to be? Who does Jesus... Jesus never stops trusting the goodness of God. Even when things aren't going great for Jesus. He gets arrested. He gets killed. He's nailed to a cross. He never stops trusting the goodness of God. And we see this happening in David's life in 2 Samuel 6. He's trying to trust the goodness of God. He's ready to celebrate the goodness of God. Something bad happens and now he doubts the goodness of God. He leaves the ark at the home of Obed-Edom, but he watches, and for three months, nothing but good happens to the family of Obed-Edom. So David decides to do it again. Let's do this celebration again, this procession. Let's get the ark from Obed-Edom's home, and let's get it to Jerusalem. And this time, it's a very reverent procession. The Bible says they stop every six steps to offer a sacrifice, to worship God. But it's not just reverent. It's also, some people would say, irreverent. Some people, would, like his wife, would say disturbing. The way he is dancing and celebrating before the Lord with all his might. See, the question when it comes to worship is not, should I raise my hands or not? Should we clap or not? What about the instruments that we use? Are drums and guitars okay? Or should it just be organ? Or should, should it, you know there are some denominations that don't even, they just sing a cappella when they gather? How do we worship? How do we worship? The right question is, are you here to respond to what the Holy Spirit is up to in your life? 
what the Spirit is doing inside of you in this moment? Are you responding to that? How much more, Jesus says, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to you if you ask for it? When was the last time you asked God to give you the Holy Spirit? We, we stand and we recite the Apostles' Creed around here pretty regularly because we have baptisms pretty regularly. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Awesome. Do you also worship the Holy Spirit? Or is it just kind of like, yeah, a little unknown and a little scary? What, what if you just were like to say, okay, Lord, give me the Holy Spirit. I don't understand it, but Jesus says it's a good gift that you have for me. And so I'm asking for it. Jesus says the time is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Produce the fruit of the Spirit in me. More love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Wouldn't that be a good thing for marriages? Wouldn't that be a good thing for fathers as they relate to their children to have more fruit of the Spirit? Why aren't you asking God for it? What if when you showed up for worship, you finally got everything done that you were doing before you got here and you stopped for a second thinking about everything they're going to do after you leave here? What if you paused for a moment and you said, Lord, help me worship you in spirit and in truth today? How might that start to change you? How might that start to change your understanding of who God is? Might that be enough to start causing you to believe maybe you have a heavenly father who actually does like you? One more video clip to watch. That clip from Fences, the child is not certain if the father likes him. This clip at the end of it, I think you will be certain that the father likes the child. It's a, a video that went viral. It's a young father sitting on a couch with his young child watching TV. Take a look. Okay. They need to work on that, right? Yes. Yes, okay. Did you understand it, though? No. No. <laughs> oh, no, not, not this one. This is, this is the grand finale of this. Yeah, that's the last one. That's what I was wondering. I don't know what they're going to do next season because they did some stuff this time. Exactly what I was thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, don't bring that again. You know what I'm saying? Don't do the same stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I was like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, go somewhere else with that, but don't bring it here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's what I said. And then it was like, ah, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, what in the world? But don't do that here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> we think a lot alike, huh? Let's stand together and let's pray the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now let's worship in spirit and in truth this last song. <laughs>